This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Climate One is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton, and today we're talking about the weather, the hot, wet, dry, and weird weather. 2014 was the hottest year on record. Winter didn't go away. It still got cold, but temperatures around the world and around the country are on the rise. Severe weather is also increasing. Big droughts, big floods, and lots of crazy storms. Oceans are rising and eating into coastlines and threatening waterfront property. Over the next hour, we'll talk about climate disruption and what, how we can address it. Later in the hour, we'll also hear from a startup company, Planet Labs, that is putting satellites in space and mapping the massive changes to the Earth's surface in near real time. First, the weather in the oceans. Jane Lubchenco was administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in President Obama's first term. She's cur- currently a distinguished university professor at Oregon State University. She's at Climate One today to receive the Stephen Schneider Award for Outstanding Climate Science Communication, a $15,000 prize in memory of the late Stanford climate scientist Stephen Schneider. Dr. Schneider was the first member of the Climate One Advisory Council. Please welcome Jane Lubchenco to Climate One today. Jane Lubchenco, welcome. So 2009... President Obama asked you to go to Washington to run the weather. And then <laughs> the weather goes crazy. Uh, there's lots of storms. There's Hurricane Sandy. There's all sorts of things. Why did you do that to the weather? <laughs> NOAA has multiple responsibilities, weather, climate, oceans, and coasts. So it's a pretty broad portfolio. But the weather and the National Weather Service is certainly one window into uh, NOAA's responsibilities. Uh, and little did I know, little did any of us know, how crazy uh, we, the, the weather was going to be. Uh, and <clears throat> the, uh, looking back on those four years, It was actually the most extreme four years, 2009 to 2013, in any four-year period in U.S. history. Uh, We had over 660 major tornadoes. We had 60 Atlantic hurricanes, including Sandy, Isaac, and Irene. We had six major, just devastating floods. We had record-breaking snowfall. Um, prolonged heat waves, uh, wildfires, uh, you name it, pretty much every category of weather, and we broke records. And I frankly think that much of that weird weather is what has contributed significantly to more Americans paying attention to the very important issue of climate change, because it was no longer, in their view, something that was, you know, way far down the road in the future or someplace way off in the Arctic, they were actually experiencing something that they knew was weird. And it was a major challenge to stay on top of 
the very important weather forecasts and disaster warnings that NOAA issues uh, to be able to try to keep people out of harm's way, have the forecasts be as accurate as they uh, could be, uh, far in advance as they could be. And that effort uh, is actually a very complicated one. It was, it was fun as a marine biologist to go to NOAA. I knew a lot about the ocean parts of NOAA and a fair amount about the climate responsibilities that NOAA had. But learning about weather forecasting and learning about satellites that are so important to being able to forecast the weather was really fun. <clears throat> Just, you know, I, this, is, this is the little kid in me, the scientist in me that really likes to learn new things. And that was a real treat. With big, fancy, expensive toys in the sky. I uh, had the opportunity to fly through Hurricane Sandy. Uh, NOAA has Hurricane Hunter planes right. that they fly through the hurricane multiple times to gather precious data that you can't get from satellites or from other planes that are sampling the vicinity both to understand what's happening inside the storm to do a better forecast, but also to do research and improve the quality of the weather, the the hurricane forecast, whether it's the track or the intensity. And I am a very hands-on person, and there were uh, NOAA scientists and university scientists who were routinely flying through hurricanes, and I wanted to understand what they were doing up there uh, and so I had that wonderful uh, but somewhat dubious experience. I get seasick, so I was really worried about going up there. But I, I didn't get sick at all. It was very, very turbulent. But uh, the rhythmic motions of the boats that make me seasick, this was not rhythmic. This was just totally turbulent. So it was uh, a fascinating experience, and I came away with much, much... Uh, greater appreciation for the ends to which many scientists go to push the boundaries of knowledge and to deliver important information to people to keep them safe. And what are the bounds of knowledge now with regard to the human caused, the human fingerprints on things like Hurricane Sandy? is, Is climate change contributing, amplifying, causing, or unrelated? With all this bizarre weather, people were really beginning to ask the questions. What is the connection between these extreme events and um, climate change? And I think this really came to a head with Hurricane Sandy because it was such a huge, very powerful storm, and it created so much incredible damage. Uh, New York, New Jersey bore the brunt of it, but the storm actually affected all the way to the Great Lakes. So the entire eastern seaboard and the Great Lakes had impacts from Sandy. And especially after Mayor uh, Bloomberg and Governor Christie started talking about this is a harbinger of things to come, uh, many people were saying, can we attribute Sandy to climate change? And I think that uh, there's, there's a whole science of attribution that is very, very active. Uh, many people are interested in being able to do that. The science that enables us to do that is getting better and better and better, but we're not there yet to be able to say with any certainty in real time uh, whether an event is 
uh, caused by climate change. Usually we can do so, you know, a year or so after the fact. But heads up, the science is getting better and better, and I'm hopeful that we will get to the point where we'll be able to do that. Many scientists often answer this attribution question by saying, you know, we can't attribute any particular event, uh, but this is consistent with what we would expect. And that's absolutely true. But I think it's actually more powerful to use an analogy uh, to describe the relationship uh, and to connect it to something that people understand. And the one, on, the, 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 the one that I find helpful is an analogy with baseball. And uh, it simply uh, alludes to the fact that if a baseball player starts taking steroids, he has a much better chance of hitting lots more home runs and some really big ones. Now, that doesn't mean that you can point to any particular home run and say, aha, that home run is because he's taking steroids. But the pattern of a lot more and, and bigger is attributable to his taking steroids. And by analogy, I think what we're seeing is whether on steroids, whether on climate steroids. And so I think that is the best answer to your question. Uh, but stay tuned, because the science is getting better and better, our models are getting better, and I think uh, in the not-too-distant future, we'll be able to answer the question more directly uh, in real time. I'm wondering what Barry Bonds thinks about climate change, but that's, that's for another, <laughs> uh, another day. So are you saying that we'll get to the point where the Weather Channel will say, there'll be a little bug on the Weather Channel that say, this storm is juiced by climate change in real time as it's happening? Is that a... I, I, that's what many people are working on, and I think it might come to pass. How about uh, specific things people here in California wondering about the drought? There's been something of a debate recently. There's one, uh, one group of scientists say that the drought is very much related. NOAA had another report saying, no, it's not. You can understand how the public gets confused when that happens, and then it kind of it's a stall, or they walk away, or they go back to what they originally thought. So your thoughts on, and I know you're more of an oceans expert than a California drought expert, but what can we say about the, the California drought and climate? So I am not an expert on attribution, uh, but I think what's most important to understand is that there is natural variability in our weather systems. Uh, we have droughts. We've had droughts for many, many years. We've had mm -hmm. periods of intense rainfall. What's happening with climate change uh, is that it is contributing directly. It, it's contributing to the, the general pattern of variability that exists. And so um, there is no doubt uh, in my mind that the increased amount of energy in the system, which is what climate change is doing, uh, the increased temperatures that we've seen uh, are certainly exacerbating uh, any naturally occurring droughts that might have happened. And so there's definitely a climate signal in there the relative importance of climate versus natural variability in that particular event is not something that I'm mm -hmm. qualified are, to say. You are familiar with the oceans, and tell us what's happening. How is climate change manifest in the oceans, both in terms of warming, acidification, et cetera? What, what are we seeing in the oceans? So the oceans are uh, most definitely warming. 
uh, and that's true around uh, the globe. They are getting warmer and warmer. Uh, warmer water also holds less oxygen, so the oceans are lower in oxygen than they were before. They are becoming more acidic because the oceans have been absorbing much of the carbon dioxide that people have been putting up into the atmosphere. And when oceans absorb that carbon dioxide, they become more acidic. That's very problematic for a lot of marine life that makes shells or skeletons of calcium carbonate. We've already seen uh, oysters uh, and other shellfish be seriously affected by uh, this increased acidification. And obviously, oceans are becoming, uh, sea level is rising. So there are multiple different ways uh, that climate change is affecting oceans. And that, in turn, of course, affects people. Yeah, eat oysters, for sure. People who love oysters, that's a really uh, a tough one. What are the solutions? Can the oysters go somewhere, do something? How can they be protected? Uh, a lot of life in the oceans uh, is on the move these days. Some species are moving toward the poles uh, or deeper to stay in cooler water. Uh, that's not an option for all species, and they're moving at different rates. And so the fabric of the communities uh, is being um, uh, affected. They're, the interactions, you know, predator, prey, the timing of when they reproduce, there are lots of uh, changes that are underway. The global pattern of increasing acidity in oceans is also exacerbated by local runoff of mm -hmm. uh, nutrients, either carbon or nitrogen, to the ocean. And so local runoff can make the problem even worse. And so one immediate short-term solution is to help stem the flow of these nutrients to coastal waters uh, but in the end, reducing our emissions of CO2 is absolutely uh, needed to be able to, uh, in, in the long term, to address ocean acidification. There's also some very positive stories where oceans have, and fish populations and marine ecosystems have bounced back. So tell us some of the positive stories where humans have, uh, have, have helped or correct some of their previous uh, excesses. Um, the changes that I just described uh, are not the only changes that are happening in oceans. Uh, there has been very significant overfishing at a global scale, uh, and this has been going on for quite some time. That overfishing uh, and habitat destruction uh, have been really problematic, and all of those factors are uh, interacting. Uh, we've had some amazing turnaround in addressing some of those problems. Uh, the four years that I was at NOAA, we uh, saw very, very dramatic changes in U.S. fisheries, uh, thanks to really strong legislation that was passed in 2006, and thanks to uh, a very talented team at NOAA and very dedicated fishermen who were really interested in also ending overfishing, uh, and some very skilled non-governmental organizations working together we've really completely turned the corner in ending overfishing in U.S. waters, and it's a major success uh, and something that really gives many people hope that we can address other major problems as well. 
The Europe, European Union has been uh, a major fishing nation like the U.S., uh, and uh, around 75% of their fisheries are currently overfished. Uh, so it's really, really serious. They took a look at how we had turned things around using this tough legislation, but also changing the type of fishery management to be more, um, to change the economic incentives for fishermen. And that, uh, they were very attracted to that. And last year passed uh, a complete overhaul of their fisheries law that uh, will put them on a path to recovering depleted species and ending overfishing. So it's really, really good news. In the year 2000, let me just give you a couple of numbers. In the year 2000, of all the depleted fisheries that existed in federal waters in the U.S., uh, none of them had been recovered. Zero in the year 2000. The year that I went to NOAA, 2009, we had four species that had been recovered, rebuilt, uh, and currently there are 32 species that have been recovered and rebuilt. So not only are we ending overfishing, but we're actually rebuilding stocks that had been depleted. So it is possible to do something that many people thought was impossible, and a number of developing countries uh, are beginning to tackle this problem too. So globally, there's still very significant serious overfishing, but we know how to fix it, and there has been the political will uh, and the interest on the part of the industry as well as good scientists and NGOs to actually come together and fix it. It's remarkable. And what should consumers, individuals, think about when they go to the grocery store and maybe they eat fish? What should they look for mm-hmm. to not be part, part of the, of problem. the problem? Yeah, yep. to, to think, eat the, eat the right, not feel guilty. <laughs> yeah. So one of the reasons that there has been uh, this turnaround has been more and more consumer interest in buying only sustainably caught or uh, farmed seafood. Uh, And we now have uh, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Card, uh, which provides very uh, useful information. There's an app, and so you can go to a restaurant or the grocery store and look up on your uh, app and see what... uh, what is uh, a good alternative or what's uh, a good buy uh, and what to avoid. And the Marine Stewardship Council is the other major certifier of uh, seafood. Uh, And that's been, uh, I think, really important in driving public awareness about what's happening in oceans and the importance of decisions that people make. But even more importantly, that's driven the great big huge buyers like the Costco's, the Walmarts, uh, and other big chains to commit to buy only sustainably caught or farmed seafood. So we're seeing both on the demand side and the supply side some very strong positive changes that uh, give me hope that we can uh, solve this problem. It's going to be harder with climate change and ocean acidification, but again, these things are interacting. And then the other good thing that's happening uh, is creation of many large no-take marine reserves and even some smaller ones. California has been a real leader in this, in the Marine Life Protection Act, uh, creating networks of marine protected areas and no-take areas along the coast. Um, Those can help to recover depleted fisheries and to protect biodiversity. 
And so all these things fit together because species that are in the ocean are affected by all these things. One person said to me recently that those protected areas are like hospice for fish. It's just where they go to die because the ocean's in such a bad shape. Is that too cynical? Uh, it's actually uh, much more... Po- yes, it is too cynical. It's much <laughs> more positive than that. They uh, have also been called, more appropriately, uh, regeneration zones or fish banks because, in fact, because fish are not being removed, they can uh, grow and grow really big, and then that bounty spills over the edges. So they're actually acting to replenish depleted areas around them. And there is good evidence that areas, especially very large areas uh, that are protected like this, where no extractive activities are allowed, those areas are more resistant to invasions from invasive species. They are more resilient in the face of uh, bleaching events caused by climate change with warmer water. So creation of healthy habitats that are not uh, subjected to fishing or mining or drilling are likely a key component of uh, making oceans more resilient and buying us um, some hope that we might have healthy oceans down the road. What populations or geographies are most vulnerable to the changes happening in the oceans because of climate change? If we look at ocean acidification, the west coast of the U.S., uh, Washington, Oregon in particular, uh, but also parts of California, um, are becoming more acidic at a faster rate, in part because of the ocean dynamics of what happens off our coast with the upwelling. Um, That's cold water that comes up from the deep. Cold water that comes up from the deep. And so those areas are... And that's where, for example, we saw the first indications of problems with shellfish, with oysters, was off Oregon and Washington. So some areas are becoming more acidic at a faster rate. Um, Others are warming at different rates. And part of uh, the real challenge right now is to understand... um, if there are sort of safe harbor areas where things aren't as bad as they are elsewhere and how we can utilize that knowledge as well as reducing carbon emissions because that's really what's driving a lot of these problems, but also creating no-take marine protected areas and ending overfishing. Those will all help, and they're all needed. So what can an average citizen do listening to this who cares about the oceans? What can people do that will have an impact? You know, being active in uh, reducing your own footprint and making your own decisions is important, but, but really paying attention to the politics of it and having members of state legislatures, of Congress, um, and, and having uh, businesses, communities really show leadership in addressing climate problems as well as taking care of oceans Uh, You know, things happen because citizens want them to happen and make them happen. And, you know, California has certainly been a leader in in much of that, and it's it's making a difference. We're joined now by Alex Baker, Director of Business Development at Planet Labs, here at Climate One with Jane Lubchenco, former administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. I'm Greg Dalton. So, Alex Baker, tell us how you got into first interested in climate and how that brought you to Planet Labs, and we'll talk about what Planet Labs does. Uh, thanks. I'm um, great to be here. I just want to say um, congratulations, and it's an honor to be sharing the stage with you tonight. 
Um, so how did I get interested in climate change? Uh, well, I kind of think most things are a combination of, kind of luck, timing, and personal experience. So, um, the personal experience was kind of growing up as a kid. Um, a lot of my uh, dad's relatives from Iraq came out as refugees. And that kind of taught me that you know, like life for family units, for cities, for nations, is often driven by stuff that's pretty much out of your control. You might have like a mild hand on the rudder, but you're not really fully steering the ship. Um, kind of the, the luck here is uh, high school, I had a great teacher called uh, Miss Sharp who introduced geography to me in a way that made me understand for the first time that, yeah, one of the biggest impacts that's going to affect kind of all levels, families, two nations, is going to be climate change and its impacts. Um, and kind of studying climate models at university, where I always studied geography in England, um, it became very clear that the pressing issue that will affect my family, the UK, the world, over my lifetime and beyond, will be climate change, uh, which led me to want to pursue a field within, a career within that field. I'm not a scientist, uh, don't claim to be, and have huge respect for uh, the work that goes into uh, the science that really kind of shapes our policy and social responses to, to issues today. Um, but I did want to build a career bringing innovative financial or technology solutions to the marketplace. Um, and so I started out at the World Bank doing renewable energy and energy efficiency financing, uh, moved to, back to London where I was involved in the world's largest private sector carbon fund, um, creating carbon assets and trying to put a price signal onto the externality of a lot of industrial society. And then I uh, came to California, where I've been involved in venture capital and grant-making to innovative technologies. And more recently, for the last year, I've been at um, Planet Labs, the premise of which very much captured my attention. And so Planet Labs is mapping the surface of the world uh, in near real time and, and helps us understand deforestation and other things. And I want to talk with Jane Lubchenco about how, mm-hmm. yeah, how that f- connects with the government and other things. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we are building the world's largest constellation of satellites, um, we're not building a typical constellation, which involves very large, um, very, very costly, hundreds of millions of dollars per single satellite system. Uh, we are deploying what we call microsatellites. Um, and this probably won't work on radio, but just for the benefit of the people in the room today, there's a very diligent photographer right in front of me called Ed uh, that has a very nice, I think, digital SLR camera with a 29-megapixel CCD. Ed, if you wouldn't mind just showing the audience the the kind of piece of equipment you are using. <laughs> so, so kind of that is pretty much the size of one of our satellites, right? That's kind of what a it looks camera like. that a camera that an eager dad might use at a kid's soccer game or something like that. So, okay. Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, obviously, the kind of technology we use is more advanced than that. Uh, we have tested it in space, but it's kind of a similar premise. What if you could launch many satellites that size what could you do, right? What if you could put a camera inside every one of them and operate hundreds of these things? Um, What does that mean? What does that mean for the planet? Can you build a commercial business around that? Uh, Can that have societal impact at the same time? So that's basically what we're doing. Our goal over the next 12 months is to take a composite image of the entire planet uh, once every 24 hours. Jane Lubchenco, uh, Noah's in the satellite business. Is this a threat or a compliment to what the government's doing or filling a hole? No, it's uh, very exciting. It's nicely complimentary. Uh, NOAA uh, and NASA uh, both operate uh, a number of satellites in space that are critically important to providing information that allows us to forecast the weather, but also understand climate change, uh, rescue people, uh, measure changes in oceans, 
there are, you know, the, the satellites that we have are typically very large, very, very expensive, billions of dollars expensive. And they typically have multiple instruments on them that are either uh, imaging the earth, uh, either the land uh, or the water or both, uh, or the atmosphere, critically important, but also uh, space to detect, uh, to measure solar flares, for example, or to see uh, if there are, uh, to, to measure solar wind, for example. But those measurements are not just the visible wavelengths that Planet Labs is really working, you know, taking pictures that you can see and get incredible information from, but measuring uh, things that you can't see in the atmosphere, measuring ozone, measuring the chemistry of the atmosphere, measuring rain, uh, measuring uh, ocean color, measuring uh, sea surface heights. How high is the ocean? How, you know, how, where is it uh, higher than other places? So we can have very fine, very, very precise measurements of sea level rise. How deep is the ocean? You can do bathymetry. You can measure the bottom of the ocean from space. So there are tons of things that these satellites do that are critically important that are not just visible wavelength information, mm-hmm. but other wavelengths radiation, calculating the Earth's radiation budget, the solar radiation, those are all things that you can do from space. And uh, I think one thing that people may not be totally aware of is, you know, if you are hiking or sailing and you have a disaster and you activate an emergency transponder beacon, that signal goes up to one of our satellites and that is radioed back to Earth, and there are people that sit in a NOAA office that are tracking uh, these uh, help signals and directing, you know, calling up, uh, finding out who is the closest emergency responder to go out and rescue somebody. So, you know, that's yet another service uh, that some of these great big huge satellites are performing. And you've all seen, I'm sure, some great tracks of... Uh, critters that have special satellite tags on them, uh, whether it's uh, great white sharks uh, or turtles or whatever, that information is also relayed to satellites. So the whole constellation of satellites that NOAA has, either those that orbit uh, around the Earth and the Earth is spinning underneath them, uh, or ones that sit up uh, at a constant place over the Earth and move with the Earth, all of those satellites uh, give us an incredible amount of information, but they're very, very expensive. And, and I, ha- I have to tell you the one story uh, that I think it, that really brings this home. So many people, I think, are unaware of how important satellites are to our ability to forecast weather. And um, I can tell you that 90% of the data that go into our weather models come from satellites. So they're really, really important. When I was at NOAA, we had uh, a problem with one of our satellite systems. We had to fix that problem, and then I had to go up to Capitol Hill and describe to them uh, what we had done and why it was so important for Congress to fund this program. And this one member of Congress looked at me and he said, Doctor, I don't need your weather satellites. I have the weather channel. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, oops, 
I better explain to him where the Weather Channel gets its information, as well as all of the other weather mm -hmm. providers. And some of the funding uh, has been challenged. The CIA had a climate analysis group that was defunded. Some of the funding for climate work at NOAA has been challenged. So how has the, the needs of the country for understanding the climate that's coming our way been compromised by some of the partisanship and budget challenges? And could something like Planet Labs fill that niche? First Jane and then Alex. Um, as I said, I think what Planet Labs is doing is uh, really important, uh, and it's sort of a new model. Uh, it is lots of, uh, lots of satellites you know, working together in a network to provide a good piece of uh, very valuable information. Uh, and I think that's a really nice complement to uh, and pretty much the antithesis of the great big huge, huge, huge and very costly uh, satellites that the government operates. And people are really questioning how sustainable the, the big, very expensive model is. Uh, and I, I think it's a robust discussion. Uh, and I think we need to be exploring other models like what Planet Lab is doing because we really, that, that information is so valuable, we really need it. Sounds like mainframe computers and iPhones sort of thing. Alex Baker, how do you mm -hmm. make money? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> so we are a venture-backed company. Um, we uh, do have customers, and those customers are essentially buying pictures from us, uh, by buying individual pictures and composite pictures. Um, those These buyers are... Spy agencies, government agencies? Who so there is a lot of interest from governments, the U.S. and around the world. We made a really conscious choice not to pursue the U.S. government as our first customer. Um, many other commercial uh, satellite companies often go down that route just because it's been so expensive and it kind of makes sense to secure like a very big upfront contract. Uh, we chose not to do that because kind of didn't need to, uh, number one. And number two, uh, we didn't want to get the lock-in that comes from building to kind of government specification. Uh, that can very much drive your product development um, and, frankly, your marketing and commercial activities. Um, so we will work with the government. We're excited to, uh, both the U.S. and beyond. Uh, but that has not been our focus over the first few years of the company. So how, say there's a, uh, we're expecting more volatile weather in the future, how could your information help people, help responders, bring more mm -hmm. information when there's another Hurricane Sandy, another Hurricane Katrina, and more superstorms? Yeah, no, it's a, that's a really uh, interesting and meaningful problem. Um, obviously, we will be taking pictures pretty quickly over areas that have been affected. Um, and we've actually struck up a number of partnerships in a, an initiative we call kind of uh, Planet.org or Planet Impact, where we hope to work with kind of academic institutions and nonprofits to really make sure this data gets into the hands of people that can use it uh, for the betterment of science um, society. Uh, so in this particular case, we have a partnership with a group called Zooniverse at the University of Oxford. Um, now, they are super interesting. They have a community of about 2 million, um, essentially kind of academic citizen scientists uh, that they kind of shoot out pictures to. Um, and those pictures can be kind of of anything. They started by taking pictures of the night sky, slicing them up in a, like, much smaller chunks, and putting them in front of people and asking them to tell them what was in the picture. Turns out humans are still like, really good at identifying what's in pictures and computers and machine vision, not quite there. Uh, so they basically crowdsource imagery and they ask people to tell them what's there. So we're going to use that same set of infrastructure to do classification post-disaster. So Hurricane happens, streets get flooded, buildings fall down, ships topple over. 
uh, you kind of want your first responders to know the lay of the land. Right? What are they walking into? How serious and how widespread is the issue they're facing? Uh, and you can see a lot of that. Um, so we're going to use that system and then pipe the data through a group called the, uh, what is it, the crisis mappers who work with the United Nations to make sure that that information is in the right hands. Um, so that's an example of a project that we are excited to undertake with the data we'll be producing. And Jane Levchenko, there's other examples of crowdsourcing, getting information, getting more robust data that, that only humans can do. So talk about how that's helped NOAA flesh out some of the historic data using citizen scientists and crowdsourcing. I think this is one of the most exciting things that's happened in the last few years is just the engagement of uh, broad numbers of people in the, the doing of science. Uh, and at NOAA, we also partnered with Zooniverse, the same uh, group that uh, we were just talking about. Uh, in this case, uh, the, the question is, what can we say about the weather patterns uh, in the North Atlantic where there aren't land-based um, stations to give us weather information? In the period of time between the resolution you can get with ice core information and when satellites um, started giving us information about. So there's sort of this blank period of time where we didn't have any information. Well, all of the naval ships that were going in those areas uh, would take very routine, very precise measurements of weather observations. Those are all buried in logbooks. So the National Archives has all these naval logbooks, and somebody had the bright idea of scanning all those, making them available on the web to people that Zooniverse would contact and say, hey, would you like to adopt a ship and start reading through the logbook of this ship? And oh, by the way, you know, when you come across the weather record for that day or the multiple records for a day, put, put it into this spreadsheet uh, and they've got this all figured out. They know how to uh, get people interested. They know how to have multiple people do the same pages and to figure out who's giving accurate information and who isn't. So they've, they've, they've got mm -hmm. that all figured out. But this old weather record project that NOAA had jointly with the uh, National Archives and with Zooniverse was just spectacularly successful. And we had a, a party to sort of announce many of the results and, and w pointing out that now scientists can take these data and do something meaningful with them to characterize what the weather was like then. Uh, but there were a number of characters who had participated in this who showed up and talked about what they learned and why they were doing it. And most of them didn't really care about the weather. They were uh, essentially living vicariously through these logbooks, whatever was happening on board the ship. And so they, were, they would talk about what people ate and, and all the sort of palace intrigues that were going on on the vessels or who fell overboard or whatever was going on. And it was a really interesting phenomenon, but delivering really mm -hmm. useful, valuable information for science. And so I think this crowdsourcing... Uh, is very powerful tool, uh, and more and more scientists are using it to help analyze very, very large amounts of uh, information where you really need people to do something specific, like identify something. You're listening to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Our guests today are Jane Lubchenco, former administrator of NOAA, and Alex Baker, head of business development at Planet Labs. Uh, Alex Baker, one of the things you're seeing is 
urbanization and destruct deforestation. So tell us how you're bringing new transparency to show mm-hmm. in very quick time what's happening to the surface of the planet, and, and then that's related to climate change. Mm-hmm. So if you look at kind of the, the visible surface of the planet, I think everyone knows that land use and land use change has been a massive driver of kind of carbon emissions. Last time I checked, which was about 10 years ago, so I apologize if this data is wrong, it's about 20 to 30 percent as I understood it. Generally, kind of that's forest land being converted to, uh, to agriculture. Um, what kind of amazes me is as we build our system, we look at more and more of the planet and more and more frequent timescales. Right? So you're looking at China and you compare it one picture this week from one last week and like bridges are built. Towns expand, <laughs> like lakes physically dry up, like in front of your eyes. Um, yeah, the the forests of Amazonia kind of decrease, and you, you get to see this, right? Um, and I think that's incredibly useful as data sets to create for kind of science. There's also commercial value in there. Um, but there's one aspect we don't talk about that frequently at Planet, which I think is really important. Um, pictures of what's happening kind of connect with people. And a lot of what um, I heard this evening and um, in previous talks about climate change and the response to it is people don't connect to it enough. Um, And what I personally feel when I see a lot of our images and I see uh, changes in agriculture, forestry, farming, urbanization, uh, roads, rivers, is a real connection to what's happening. Um, So I'm kind of excited and interested to see how that might actually have an impact on kind of the human psyche, showing changes uh, within timescales and at resolutions that kind of show humans' impact on the planet. Jane Levchenko, do you have any photos of you in that uh, storm chaser plane? That's a (laughs) photo I'd like to see. Uh, I do have some. Oh, okay. They're kind of shaky. You can uh, shake, sure. You can post them on Twitter or Facebook later. Um, I want to uh, ask you before we go to audience questions about the U.S. Navy and how that is being impacted by climate change. They're not not directly related to NOAA, but you clearly work with them in your time in the Obama administration. They're doing a lot on clean fuels, but they're also Navy bases are at risk from sea level rise. And what? How's the role of the Navy going to, you know, maybe connect with NOAA and change? So uh, the Department of Defense more broadly um, takes climate change very seriously. They really see it as a national security threat. And uh, there have been, um, it's especially in, in the last um, few years, this, this has really been a serious topic of discussion. The Navy is really on the front lines of that. And they have had some really superb leaders who really understand how much sea level rise is a threat to all those naval bases. They also uh, have had experience dealing with refugees and increased conflicts, and they see connections uh, across these. So the Marines are the first ones to go in, so they're on the, the Marines are on the front lines. They are indeed, and especially with ice melting in the Arctic, uh, the Navy has had special attention not only to climate change more broadly because of sea level rise, but because of the changes in the Arctic and what that portends for their operations, their responsibilities. I asked the Secretary of the Navy about that. He said, we need some more ships to patrol the Arctic. So <laughs> let's uh, go to our audience questions. Thank Welcome you. to Climate One. Thank you, Holly Kaufman. Congratulations again. Um, I wanted to follow up on Greg's question about the funding of the satellites. My understanding was several years ago, the U.S. government was not going to continue to fund the satellites we needed for the climate um, measurements and observations. So, Jane, could you update us on that? 
And I'm curious to know if there's an issue of space trash with satellites and if we're able to reuse or recycle them in any way. Thank you. The uh, challenge of funding these great big, huge satellites is very, very real because they are so expensive. They take many, many years to build. Uh, It's billions of dollars. Uh, Of NOAA's $5 billion budget, more or less, about $2 billion of that is satellites. So it really is a huge chunk. And uh, NASA's is much, much larger, and then the Department of Defense have their satellites. So there's lots and lots of money that goes into satellites. We had a program of building um, the next generation of polar orbiting satellites that had some serious problems that I inherited when I uh, came to NOAA. We had to fix those problems, and fixing them uh, took a while, and uh, because the program had had such a difficult time uh, in its earlier history... Many, many members of Congress were very concerned about whether they should invest the money for these satellites or not. And they wanted to be reassured that, in fact, that the problems had been fixed and the satellite program was going to be successful. Part of the fixing of that uh, satellite program uh, entailed essentially the different agencies involved getting divorced And what was left unfunded were some of the climate instruments, which is really, really important because uh, not only do we need the information, but we need information that is a continuous record of information. It's when it's broken, then all of that earlier information is just not as valuable. So uh, there's a real challenge to continually funding these instruments. And... This presented an opportunity for members of Congress who were on an anti-climate, you know, a climate denier bandwagon uh, to not want to fund those instruments. So it has been a target of climate deniers, and it's a very, very serious problem. Uh, But it was caught up in these larger issues of expensive satellites and who's going to fund what. Alex Baker, your satellites are made in San Francisco. Are they recyclable? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it depends. I mean, well, I haven't seen an engineer turn one into a beer can yet, but maybe one of the flight spares over the next six months will end up that way. Um, Are they recyclable? No, they're not necessarily recyclable, but um, we also don't... uh, don't contribute to any kind of issue about trash in space. I understand why that might appear to be a problem, right? You throw hundreds of things up there, kind of what happens? Are you destroying a global commons? Can other people then access space? Uh, Will we hit other bigger, more expensive satellites? All very good, very important questions. Um, We kind of use space as a commons to be used by humanity. Um, We would never want to inhibit others from doing that. So the, the height we choose to fly at, so the altitude above the Earth, is um, between kind of 400 and 550 kilometers. Not many people want to put other satellites there just because it's a little bit too close for the very big, expensive satellites. So what that means is we kind of deorbit and burn up in the atmosphere on a pretty you know, routine basis. It's an operational plan we have. Uh, so they also... compost, they don't recycle. I got it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Um, compared to kind of let's say, carbon emissions from cars or power plants, I'm not sure that our camera size is going to have a significant impact on the atmosphere, uh, but they do burn up and are distributed. 
We'll call it composting. That's, next question. Welcome to Climate uh, One. Carter Brooks, artist and philosopher of climate art. Uh, congratulations on the Stephen Schneider Award, and my question is about the occasion. Um, Stephen had some great ways of putting things, and I wonder if there are any of his particular uh, ways or metaphors that he used to use that you find yourself using or you find yourself thinking about uh, as you confront the issues of communication these days. Answer that, and then I also want you to. I neglected earlier and uh, want to get in before we end here your reflections on Steve Schneider, Jane Lipchenko. So, thanks for that question uh, and the opportunity. Uh, Steve, I, I, I miss Steve, uh, and just seeing those images of him uh, on the film really brought back uh, how much I miss him, and I'm sure that's true of many of you. Steve was such a, a stalwart champion of science and of rigorous thinking, uh, clear thinking, rigor, uh, and he didn't suffer fools lightly. Uh, he really was, um, he loved a good fight, and he saw this as a worthy fight, and he poured his heart and his soul into it. That was such a powerful model for many, many people. Uh, you know, for a long time, he was really a lone voice in the wilderness, uh, and I think he would be astounded at how many new voices there are and how much they have been influenced by him. I think this award is a really wonderful way to draw attention to his legacy, but all the people that are working, all the scientists that participated in the National Climate Assessment, in the latest uh, intergovernmental panel on climate change. All of those people have been influenced by Steve in a very, very direct and powerful way. One thing that Steve was very passionate about was passing his knowledge on, helping to train new uh, young scientists in communication, in, in sharp thinking. My son was a student of Steve's, uh, uh, took classes from Steve at Stanford, and so I, I know how much Steve was pushing interdisciplinary thinking and really getting scientists out of their comfort zone and, and thinking more broadly about societal impacts. Uh, but one thing that Steve really loved doing was helping other scientists become better communicators. Uh, I co-founded the Leopold Leadership Program, which trains mid-career academic environmental scientists to be better communicators of science, to tell stories, uh, and to use metaphors, analogies, to, to, to be human. Uh, and Steve, every year, would do really important training for the Leopold Leadership Fellows. Uh, and one thing that I remember he would always tell uh, every group of uh, fellows, people came to call it the three thys. Uh, he would say, know thyself, you know, know what you are good at and what you're not good at. Know thy audience, because communication is two-way, and you can't just be telling stuff. You need to understand where they are. You need to have a dialogue. You need to engage. Uh, and the third thy was know thy stuff. Don't start spouting off about things you don't know about. Stick to what you know. If you don't know about it, learn about it. But he would always say, know thyself, know thy audience, and know thy stuff. So whenever I think of Steve, I always think of the three thys. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. 
I have a question, and I was wondering about the potential for transitioning, say, fishermen into um, recruitment for characterizing maybe the waters, the terrestrial impacts on water quality, habitat assessments, that sort of thing. And um, I have to make a comment that I'm very disappointed that we don't have more public discourse about ocean impacts. There's a lot about climate and a lot against it, but I think these oceanic impacts, all the stresses and pressures on it are so complex and I wonder what you have to say about the um, absence of that from public discourse. Thank you. So thank you for shining a spotlight on oceans. They are incredibly important to people, to our lives, uh, and that's not just people here, but people around the world. Uh, we do need more attention to that. Um, fishermen are out on the water. They're very observant. Uh, there are many opportunities that they have to be sharing information that they're learning, and uh, that works better some places in the world than others. So there are a number of programs that I know of where either government agencies or uh, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, are partnering with um, fishermen to actually report information so that we can have a better understanding of what's happening on the water and take advantage of of their deep knowledge. Welcome. Next question in Climate One. Okay. I think it's kind of interesting. I like your insight into... Uh, in a few months, we're going to have a Republican control of both houses of Congress. This hasn't happened since '94. One of the first things they did then in what was called the Newt Gingrich Congress was to shut down one of the technology parts of government, the Office of Technology Assessment, which was bipartisan, gave congressmen more insight into technical issues. So that was the first thing they did. I'm curious what your speculation might be on what is about to happen to us in a few months in that area, like EPA, NOAA, NASA? The, uh, the Stephen Schneider Award is a crystal ball. Steve <laughs> referred to a crystal ball. So, uh, Jang Lemchenko, what do you see politically quickly in your crystal ball for Washington? I think we have some clear indications that uh, there uh, is a lot of appetite uh, among the 2B majority party. Uh, to uh, roll back some of what the president uh, has championed on the climate front, uh, both with primarily EPA regulations, but also to address a number of other issues about which they're not happy. Immigration, there are a number of other things. So I think those have been foreshadowed. If there are surprises down the road, I'm not sure what those might be. Some people talk about a Republican prison break, people in mass coming out in, in favor of, of action on climate. Uh, we'll see if that happens. Next audience question. Welcome. Hi, Jane. Congratulations on your award. I'm Karina Nielsen, and I am uh, director of the Romberg-Tiburon Center uh, at San Francisco State's um, Research Laboratory on the Bay. I've been really interested in the role, what you think of the role of policy for mitigating against things like sea level rise versus the prospect of raising people's attention to actually do something about climate change and carbon emissions um, to the extent that we mitigate and prevent exposure to major events and their really great catalytic ability to galvanize attention. I'm just wondering, to the extent that we continue to mitigate, are we losing the opportunity to advance quickly on solving carbon emission problems? So I'm not sure I understood that, Karina. Okay. There's a major push right now in policy to try and create 
the ability to mitigate against sea level rise um, and some to, of the impacts of climate to change. Ad- adapt, so you I mean to, to adapt. adapt. To adapt, yeah. yeah. Got it. To sort of prevent you know, the worst impacts of it. So to the extent that we continue to do that, we are reducing people's exposure to catastrophic anecdotal events that seem yep. to galvanize their attention. Yep. Thank you. Um, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that we need to be flat on on both fronts uh, simultaneously. We need to be pushing ahead to reduce emissions as fast as possible uh, and to be as smart as possible in, in, in use of energy. Uh, at the same time, we do need to prepare for changes that have already been set in motion that are going to play out, uh, and we need to be doing both. And I'm not sure that uh, it, it's not one versus the other. We need both. We're going to wrap it up by asking uh, Alex Baker and Jake Lomchenko what you are doing personally in your own lives quickly to reduce your own carbon footprint. Uh, Alex Baker? Um, I am trying to eat less uh, bread meat, um, mainly because I'm uh, in my mid-30s now and starting to get a bit of a belly, but it also has (laughs) wonderful uh, carbon reduction potential uh, by shifting my dietary preferences. We have a program on that uh, podcast coming up about uh, whether beef are part of the solution or part of the problem. Anything else? No hamburger? Let few, well, you're British. You don't eat hamburgers. But, you know, uh, so uh, <laughs> anything else um, other than the red meat? Uh, let me think about that. Um, I try and help out where I can, ride my bike where possible, um, and help out at various academic institutions where I've been. I try and encourage more young people. Uh, to frankly build careers that kind of combine those two goals. You can these days build careers in academia and the commercial sector and others where you kind of don't have to make a direct choice about what, if I, what am I doing today and how is that impacting the problem I care about. Yeah, sustainability is a growth industry. Jane Lomchenko, last word on your own carbon footprint. So pretty much ditto to what Alex has said, but also you know just conserving as much energy as possible uh, and... Flying is usually the big one. Oh, People talk, I was yeah. going to say buying offsets. <laughs> buying offsets yeah, for flying. When I, yeah. when I do have to fly. I flew on a Virgin America flight one time to a climate conference. And in Virgin America, you, you can order things from your seats, order a drink and a sandwich. And a carbon offset, $10. That felt good, right? And so the, the flight attendant comes and uh, she says, here's your drink, here's your sandwich. But I'm sorry, I just can't find this offset thing. I'm like, no, that's something that I paid to make myself feel better for being here with you. And she's like, oh, you're the first person that's ever ordered that. So... With that, no we have to end kidding. it. Our thanks to uh, Jane Lubchenco, former administrator of NOAA and winner of the 2014 Stephen Schneider Award here at Climate One, and Alex Baker, director of business development at Planet Labs. I'm Greg Dalton. You can follow us on Twitter at Climate One and listen to podcasts in the iTunes store. Climate One, thank you to our audience here at the Commonwealth Club and on the radio. Thanks for coming and listening. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd and editor is Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. <laughs>